All right, if you uh, think it's hot here, be glad you're not in Phoenix. They're going to hit 117. Uh, It was this hot when I was there last week, but they were really headed for the heat. Uh, We are in the Corinthian letters. We have begun an examination of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's focus there is unity. Uh, The body of disciples as a holy community. And they're divided over their favorite minister. They're divided over uh, sin in their midst. They're divided uh, over wrong that they've done to each other so that they're suing one another. Uh, And Paul keeps trying to get them to understand that they're acting like humans, with human knowledge and human wisdom. And he wants them to have godly wisdom and godly knowledge. Um, He then talks to them about Uh, marriage in the time of distress, uh, and issues related to food sacrifice to idols. His point there is that they have to have a mind of holy unity and humility. And he talks about the idea of self-limitation, which is a prerequisite uh, to what he's about to talk about. Self-limitation and humility are essential mindsets for uh, the biblical concept of love. Last time we looked at spiritual gifts and he explained the difference between their pagan past and their spiritual present was the spirit of God dwelling in them. And that that spirit, though giving them different ministries and different uh, processes within the body, it was for the unity of the body, not uniformity, but unity of the body, not to separate them. The eye can't say to the ear I have no need of thee, the foot can't say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body. Those, those things are not appropriate. So, uh, the presence of God manifests itself in variabilities of gifts, ministries, and effects. These are not to divide us, but to uh, make us, um, or to make us better than one another. They're intended to provide for the whole body, so that we can function and mature in the image of Christ. And in Ephesians, Paul addressed that. And I ended with Ephesians chapter 4, where he basically summarized that notion. I want you to walk worthy of the calling, keeping the unity of the Spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But we have differing gifts so that we can grow, so that the body will become mature in Christ. Uh, And so it's really about us, not about each individual. Though, when it's about us the individual's benefit. So we're members of Christ and we're members of one another. So we're now about to move to chapter 13. But in chapter 12, I'd like you to pick it up there. Chapter 12, the last verse. uh, Paul says, Earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now he's not talking about desiring the greater gifts for yourself. But desiring those greater gifts within the community of faith for the benefit of the body. So having said that, he says, and I show you a still more excellent way. So he's about to uh, write, he's about to pin one of the most beloved chapters in the Bible. And this text is the subject of books and sermons and discussions from the time he wrote it to the present. Uh, It is one of those passages that uh, people love, and it's one of the favorite passages of all time, the the love chapter of 
uh, 1 Corinthians, used in wedding ceremonies, used in uh, cards of appreciation, used in every kind of framework because it really is the apex of the description of uh, agapeo uh, in, in, um, in the Bible. Before we look at it, I want us to look at uh, Romans chapter 13 before we get to 1 Corinthians 13. So if you will turn to Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul overlaps and supplements in his various epistles to the churches with the assumption that all of them will be read uh, within the congregations. So in chapter 13, in uh, talking about love, uh, verse 8, Paul says, Own nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now it's interesting, he's addressing loving one another and loving your neighbor. Those are not exactly the same in the scriptures, but they overlap. He says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, interesting statement. Paul is expressing here that love is the fulfillment of the law. He actually says it twice. The one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then in verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Two different words that he is using uh, for this. Um, One of them, in verse 8, says that the person who loves his neighbor has accomplished the law. He's done what the law has required. And then he says in verse 10 that love is the filling, the fullness, the, uh, the completeness of the law. So he, he doesn't address the holiness commands here, but he says if there is any other commandment. Uh, but he really focuses on the second great commandment, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the new commandment that Jesus gave, love one another. Now, I want to remind you of those. It's very important when we teach our children or we teach anyone that they need to be focused on the three great commandments. It's very easy to get lost in the woods uh, and find one little commandment that becomes the Acts that you hatchet every tree down with, uh, and and if you watch, uh, if you watch uh, Facebook, if you read Facebook, you'll see all kinds of one verse wonders in the in the religious world. They, if you're going to do a one verse wonder, okay, then there are three verses that you need to do, and they are: you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your life, and all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you shall love one another as I have loved you. That's the way we need to catechize our children and our disciples. When they're very young, all they need to learn is this. 
Love God, love your neighbor, love one another. Now, when they get a little older, they can understand, love God with all of your being, right? With all your mind, with all your life, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, a different standard. And love one another as I have loved you, which is a self-sacrificing love at its max. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for a friend. So those commandments are critical. And all the other commandments fit into those three categories. And basically uh, give us an understanding of love. So the intent and the direction and the goal of the commandments is love. Ahava or agapeo, Hebrew or Greek or English, love. The problem is the English word love has a lot of baggage. So what is it? Love is giving to another at your expense. Okay. So to love God is to give yourself totally to him. It's all you have to give. To love your neighbor is to, if you would feed yourself and clothe yourself and give a drink to yourself, you will give that to your neighbor. And to love one another as Christ loved the church is to be willing to be sacrificial towards one another, even to the point of death. So, This notion of love, then, is really critical for us to understand. It is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's an action. But it does have an attitude, and it does have a temperament, and it does have a context that we need to understand. So if you you take the idea that love is someone has a need, you can meet that need, you meet that need, you jerk, here you go, that kind of thing. That's not really the fullness of the Torah in, in the process. That's an act of love done unlovingly in, in some sense. So I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul. Go back to now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This passage is so familiar that it's easy to just not pay attention to it. Uh, So I want to try to make it um, clear for you so that you begin to make use of it and it doesn't just hang on the wall as a a pretty uh, uh, poem. So Paul begins by saying, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. That excellent way is towards unity. Loving God makes us holy. Loving our neighbor makes us righteous. Not righteous for salvation. Talking about the righteousness of obedience. And then loving one another is unity. Which is the theme of his his message. And he's going to talk about it in more detail in chapter 14. 12, 13, and 14 go together. When you pull 13 out of it and attach it to other areas, it still works. But it's not its original context. Its original context is the body is supposed to be unified based on the dwelling of the spirit. The way of doing that is love. And chapter 14 is, here's what it looks like in practical terms, which we'll talk about next time. So, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have 
the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned as a martyr or as a sacrifice, you can interpret that either way, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Wow, profits me nothing. If I give all my money to the poor, they get some profit, but it does me no good. Okay? Because I have my reward. I'm doing it to be seen of men. I'm doing it so that I'm the object of attention, and that's a temporal thing. So he really begins by saying to us that love is not our gifts or the exercise of those gifts. Love is not in our possessions or even in the giving of them up to feed the poor. Love is not in our martyrdom or in the suffering of our body. It's not there. Those, we would call those acts of love, and they may in fact be, but they can also be acts of selfishness and self-centeredness. So what's the difference? So now what Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a understanding of the attitude and temperament of, of love. And he's going to do it in an interesting way. Uh, he's going to address also motivation in that by saying what love is and what love is not. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Love is patient, love is kind, not jealous, not bragging or arrogant, not acting unbecomingly, does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. I want to look at verses 4 and 5 there. Paul gives us two things that love is and four things that love is not. Sometimes it's difficult to define something in a, this is what it is. Sometimes we define things by what they're not. So he's giving both of these categories. And he begins with love is patient and love is kind. These are interesting words. The word patient there is the idea of enduring when challenged and being slow to anger. To be long-suffering and not becoming discouraged. This is a love that certainly is focused on not receiving anything back as it gives. Because it's going to have to, in a sense, suffer in the context of loving. Now the word patient doesn't, we don't have that. We say have patience, but why do we have patience? Because we're being irritated, right? So why does somebody say have, be patient? Because we're irritated by what's going on, right? And that changes our motive. Well, if it's going to be this hard, I'll just do something else. The idea here is that the commitment to love is patient as God is patient, slow to anger, 
slow to wrath. It is focused on the object that it is loving for its good, even if that object is making it difficult to love. And secondly, he says it's kind. Now, this word kind has the meaning behind it of being mild, gentle, and a light touch. Love is not a hammer. It's, it's, a, it's a glove, right? And love is patient in enduring the chaos that the person that you're loving is in. And it has a light touch. Those are good, good positives. We've all had somebody love us with an intensity that is not helpful, right? So this is not about the intensity of emotion. It's really about the idea that love just simply stays there and gently and consistently is giving. Now, what is it not? He says it's not jealous. That's probably not the best translation. This word does have a sense of jealousy, in the sense of envy, but more likely what this verse is, is about being zealous, pushy. So you can see that he's contrasting the patience with this one. They're not overly pushy, they're not enforcing themselves, they're not controlling because they know better. That's not an act of love. That's an act of control. That's an act of getting it your way not doing better for the other person. Secondly, he says uh, in this passage that it does not seek its own. It's not thinking about what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? That, That idea of keeping score in some sense. It's not provoked. It's not easily triggered. I think this means provoked not only to wrath, but easily triggered to do something because those things are often not thought out and in the attempt to do something good for someone, we actually don't do good. So the idea again is this is the opposite of patient and kind. And then he says in this context that it... uh, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's not keeping score. Well, you've done this to me before. Well, you've done this to me before. You've done this to me before. Love's not focused on itself. So it doesn't notice the struggle against it. It's not about Me, it's about the object of love. I mean, imagine God not being this way. What if God were not patient? What if God handled us with a heavy hand and not a gentle touch? What if God was overzealous in trying to control us and pushy 
in that context, or was only thinking about himself in this context, or uh, was easily provoked and reminded us every moment how many times we have violated his commandments. No sense of loving there. So Paul gives us an understanding that love is this kind of gentle, continuous working towards the good of the one loved without being focused on ourself, without being reactionary, without being provoked, and without keeping score. I think those descriptions make it clear that love is focused on the benefit of the other and not on the benefit of the self. Now in verse 6 he says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I think that's an interesting way that it's said. Rejoices with the truth, not in truth. This is not an intellectual approach. Well, that's true, and therefore I rejoice with that. That kind of apologetic, I see your verse and raise you too kind of thing. This is a notion that when truth is actually being lived, when truth is actually being expressed, there is a rejoicing in the truth that is taking place. But there is no joy in unrighteousness, in injustice. It's really easy for us to want to see bad things happen to bad people. That's not always justice. And we should not rejoice in that. Love is focused on the object of love and it's focused on truth in that context. This next verse is a verse that has always fascinated me. Uh, I, I was fascinated when I heard it. I became fascinated when I looked into it. It's a, it's a verse that I think goes back to this idea of love being patient and kind that constantly there and gently there, constantly and gently there. And it says it this way, verse 7. Notice it doesn't start with love. It's following up on all of these. Love is patient and kind. Love does not brag or is arrogant, does not become unbecoming, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account suffered wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bearing all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Now, the poetry of that is beautiful. But it's not actually the way the text reads. The Greek text actually says, in all things, bears up. In all things, trusts. In all things, hopes. In all things, endures. Now, remember patience? 
Patience has to endure and bear and trust and all of that in all things. And that's what love does. In other words, in whatever circumstances, whatever situation is there, love isn't going to fail. It's going to continue. It's The word bears there, fascinating word. It means to cover in the sense of hiding or protecting. It's seeking to preserve the good. Not quite sure what's the best illustration of that. Uh, sometimes when something bad's happening, you'll see a mom take a blanket or something and cover her kid. So the kid doesn't see something bad happening. And something bad happening can't actually access the kid. In other words, there's the, both of this is going on. Love, in a sense, covers everything. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. There is something about uh, not running away. Not retreating. But staying even in the circumstances which might be against it. Believes all things sounds awful. It's, it's really a bad thing. It sounds like gullibility. But it's not talking about. In all things it fades. We can't say that in English. In all things it trusts. If you only trust. If you only have faith. When things are going good. You're kind of missing the point. The, the essence of faith is when you can't see, when things are not going well, that you know whom you have believed and know that he's able to keep that which you've committed against that day. That, that's faithing in all things. Hopes. Paul talks a lot about hope. A hope is a promise of God, not a wish. I've talked about that before. What we're doing here is hope is done with patience. Paul says, if we have that which we hope for, why why do we hope for it? But if we don't have it, then with patience we long for it. So in all the circumstances, we are hoping for the hope. We are patiently waiting for the hope. And of course, the blessed hope is the return of the Lord and the promises uh, that, are, that are for us. So it waits patiently for the promises of God to come about in his time. We love to sing that song. I'm not sure we like it as much as we sing it. You know, in his time. We want to sing in my time. Or right now. Or how about yesterday. But the reality is, uh, we're trusting that the one who promised will keep his word. And it endures all things. It continues despite difficulties, despite misfortune, and despite persecution. I'm convinced that it is the love of God in us that keeps us from turning bitter at terrible circumstances. When hope is against hope, 
when everywhere you turn, it becomes darker. You would expect the attitude to just be, curse God and die. But the love of God sustains us in a way that we continue to hope despite circumstances against it. We continue to trust despite circumstances that won't go for We continue to endure despite those circumstances. Now that's not humanly possible. It has to be the love of God that is shed in our hearts and that sustains us in that context. The spirit of love that is in us. So in that context, he says, in all circumstances and conditions, love bears, trusts, hopes, and endures. It remains steadfast and sure. And so in chapter 8, verse 8, he simply says, love never fails. I don't know about you, but it seems like every electronic item I have that I don't use regularly, when I actually need it, the batteries are not working. I should leave all of my things without batteries and just have batteries next to them so that then when I'm ready, I put the battery in and use it because I get them all ready, charged up and ready to go. I don't use them and then when I need them, it's not working. Okay? Electricity fails. But love never fails. It's gently, patiently, constantly there. Now all these things that Paul's talked about from the previous chapter. That he said, if I have all these things, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. He's now going to talk about those. Those things are all temporal. They're all part of this world. And so he says these words. Love never fails. If there's prophecy, that'll be done away with. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will go away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. This word fails is a fascinating word also. It has the idea of something dropping. There's a, there's, you throw a ball, and that ball makes a beeline, and then all of a sudden it starts to drop. That's failing. Just, just can't, stay, can't sustain. Love never ceases to sustain. It never reduces. It never backs away. Love remains in all contexts because, and this is going to be the point of his chapter, love is eternal. All these other things are not eternal. Faith's not eternal. Hope's not eternal. Circumstances are not eternal. None of those things. They're all of this world, which is partial, and we don't get it. But love is an anticipation of the world to come. They're all partial. They're of the present. 
But the goal and the culmination is coming. That's the kingdom of God. That which is perfect. When the complete wholeness of the kingdom and the new creation comes, that which is partial will be done away with. And he talks about this in the same way that he's been talking about the body. I told you in Ephesians, the body is to grow up into maturity. So he uses those very ideas in his next two verses, verses 11 and 12. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. It's a fascinating thing about growing up. It does, if you just feed and water your kid, they won't grow up. They'll grow bigger but they won't grow up. They won't mature. Maturity involves children reaching a point where they begin to put away childish things. That's not easy. We all have stories of family members finally getting rid of that pacifier. You know, my sister, she kept a pacifier for a long time. And one day we made a family pilgrimage in Santa Ana in front of the old white front. I don't know if any of you remember that store. Right near where the bridge goes over the river that has no water. (laughs) And my dad drove this 1940 car up and stopped. And my sister had to get out of the car and walk to the edge of the bridge and throw away that plug. And we, I thought we sat there forever. It probably wasn't that long. But it seemed like forever. He, she couldn't just put it down. She had to get rid of it. Because she would pick it back up again. Maturity knows that it can't keep picking up childish things. That the things of childhood sometime have to be put away. That's a difficult concept for Americans. Because we want our childhood and our adult privileges too, right? Paul says we have to put that away. In addition to that, he says this. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. Again, he's talking about the kingdom after the resurrection and the new creation. And he says, we just have glimpses of what's going on now. This is why we need humility. I spent several hours over the last week talking to different people about doctrinal issues. If there's one thing clear in the Southern Baptist Convention... It is that we are not all on the same page theologically. Now, that's okay because we're a looser denominational system. Uh, There are some denominations where they have very tight control over what you believe. Uh, we're We're really odd in that we just want you not to believe something that's in opposition with something that we've generally said. We're not even asking that you fully subscribe to that Baptist faith and message. Interesting. 
in that discussion, in those discussions, it was clear that we didn't have all the answers. Now, when I'm talking with someone who knows he doesn't have all the answers, but has some ideas about what the answers are, it's a much more fruitful conversation than when I'm talking to someone who has all the answers and I have to agree totally with him. We know in part. We prophesy in part. We struggle with this partly with blinders on. But the day will come when we will see. We'll go in the resurrection. We'll go. I always thought I would have this list of questions, you know, that I'll come up. Okay, Moses, I got questions for you. Paul, I got questions for you. God, I got questions for you. That was my thought. I'm going to spend the first thousand years after the resurrection getting my questions answered. But I have a feeling that at the resurrection, when we wake up, really wake up, we'll go, oh. Ever have a question that you just thought was a very important question? And just as you come up to ask the question, the answer pops in your head and you go, and they go, what was your question? Never mind. Right? I think that's it. I'm going to do one big, never mind. Oh, I got it. And a lot of the things that I now suspect and even hold firm may just go, what foolishness was that? I am so grateful that God allows us to struggle towards knowledge and wisdom, but does not require it of us in terms of salvation. That would be a problem. So we get to the final verse of the text, which is my favorite. I talk a lot in classes about uh, the triplets of, of the faith. He says, now, not then, now, faith, hope, love, abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Wow. I would, you know, faith is pretty, pretty big deal. Hope, pretty big deal. But you've got to see that those are temporary. So if you, if you can't get your kids to understand a lot of deep theology, get them to understand this. Hope is a promise made by God. God makes a promise. If God doesn't make a promise, you don't have hope, you only have a wish. But if God makes a promise, that's your hope. He makes that promise because he loves us. Our response to that promise is to trust. That's faith. Not in the promise which is why God tested Abraham, kill the promise. Do you trust me or do you trust the promise? And Abraham trusted the promiser. Now, while you are trusting and while the hope is there, the promise is unfulfilled. By love, the promise has been given. By faith, the hope is embraced. And then one day, 
the promise comes to pass. And when the promise comes to pass, there is no hope because it's here. There is no trust because it's here. But love remains. The one who loved us enough to give us the hope whom we trust will love us even when those promises are fulfilled. That patient, gentle, light touch will embrace us for all eternity. Faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest is love. So now, I want you to catch chapter 14, verse 1. Because now Paul's going to get practical. He's given us this foundation, and he's going to say, pursue love. That's what you're after. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. You see the difference? If I'm pursuing love, love's got to have some tools. And now I can desire the best gifts. But if I'm pursuing the gifts, I'm never going to turn to love. I'm going to focus on self with my giftedness. So the, the pursuit is love. And then the desire is for the gifts for the purpose of the body, which is what he's going to talk about. He's going to tell us what we're supposed to do when we gather together as a community of faith. And that'll have to wait uh, for the next time. So with this eternal perspective, Paul is going to give specifics of how they operate now while we wait for that which is perfect to come. Let's pray.